Countrywide on ABC Radio. Ultimately, we have animals in society because they turn food that we can't eat into food that we can. Now when I pick up a carrot, it's not just an ordinary carrot. Countrywide. 30,000 tonnes a week, something like that. Uh, That doesn't even cover the issue of broadband. Climb down off your ivory tower in Canberra. You've never set foot on a farm. Countrywide. The politics of food and farming on ABC Radio. Hello, my name is Alex Trelaw. Welcome to Countrywide, coming to you from Mount Isa in outback Queensland. Did you know that there are thousands of jobs available right now in Australian agriculture, but it's an industry that is often overlooked as an opportunity for school leavers? The stereotype is old man on a tractor. There's figures around that say 80% of agriculture happens once the product leaves the farm gate. If you're looking for a career change, maybe a life on the farm is for you. Countrywide. The voice of regional Australia on ABC Radio. But first, New South Wales farmers have hit out at supermarket giant Coles after the company sent letters to farmers and suppliers rejecting their calls for price rises. Farmers are currently facing a series of challenges from natural disasters to skyrocketing input costs that are hitting their bottom line. Vice President of New South Wales Farmers, Rebecca Reardon, says the supermarket is being cheeky and rude by asking farmers to pass on the savings to the supermarket while also asking them to absorb increased input costs. Look, farmers are going through a really tough time at the moment and our costs, like everyone else, have gone through the roof. My production costs on my farm have actually doubled. So the farmers just don't have any margin there at the moment to actually give any price discounts um, any further. So it's really cheeky of Coles to come in saying, we're not going to give you a price increase because your costs have gone up, but if your costs go down, we expect you to give us a price discount. It's just an example of a company exercising their monopoly powers. Can you give me an idea of the kinds of extra costs that farmers have been incurring over the last few months? Oh, look, I can tell you now, um, the cost for myself to grow a crop, a broadacre crop, has doubled over the past year. So it's gone up over 100%. All my costs have gone up, whether it's fuel, fertiliser, chemicals, my insurance, my labour costs have all actually increased. And on my farm alone, my production costs to grow a broadacre crop have doubled in a year. So they're up over 100%. It's the most expensive crop we've ever grown. What happens if the prices stay as they are now without any increase? How would that affect farmers? Or how is that affecting farmers? We're seeing a huge increase in our farming costs and inputs, but we're not seeing our prices actually reflecting it. And we know consumers are paying more at the farm gate, but we're not seeing all of that increase. And the increases in our prices are nowhere near matching the increase in our cost. On top of that, you've got a company like Coles, which is making over a billion dollars after tax a year, um, flexing its muscle and actually trying to screw the farmer who really has no margin left to give. And it's also at the moment, as we know, um, after coming out of drought, there's now a lot around the state are actually facing massive floods. It's just cheeky and it's just rude. Now, this letter that's been reported on by the media, the letter from Coles to farmers and suppliers, do you have any idea of how widespread it is and how many have been sent out? Yeah, look, we've had our farmers ringing in, but it's been, it's been distributed, um, we understand, to most of Coles suppliers, basically. I think it's an example of, um, although the letter may not have much legal standing because it does depends what your contract is, it's an example of the supermarket basically flexing its muscles and just basically um, putting it back on the farmers who can't afford that 
um, rather than actually rolling up their own sleeves and doing something about it. Right. And New South Wales Farmers is now asking for, you know, competition reform to address issues like this. Why is this a competition issue? Basically, we have a duopoly in that market. Um, and the farmers are really price takers at the end of the day. They're being dictated to on what they will actually get paid for their thing. It isn't necessarily related to what their cost of production is. And we've seen this in the milk. We've seen this in our vegetables. Um, and this letter just goes to their general attitude of how they're actually approaching farmers. No, we're not going to give you a high price, even though you cost up, but we expect you to pass on all your cost discounts. That was Rebecca Reardon, Vice President of the New South Wales Farmers, speaking there with Hannah Jose, and Coles has been contacted for comment. Staying with the natural disasters and the floods are the latest to increase demand for the services provided by Food Bank. But despite producing the food we all need, farmers themselves are also being affected by food insecurity. That's according to Food Bank CEO Bryony Casey. She told Peter Somerville her organisation is having to purchase food where it previously had it donated. It's really important to recognise whilst there is a huge part of Eastern Australia currently underwater and, and experiencing devastating flooding, there's also a large number of communities across Australia still recovering from previous natural disasters over the last few years. We're still providing food relief into areas affected by the 2019-2020 bushfires uh, that some people call the Black Summer bushfires, but it was certainly longer than summer. Um, Communities such as the Northern Rivers of New South Wales and Southeast Queensland went through devastating floods earlier this year. We are going to be assisting those communities not for days and weeks, but for months and years, because we know it takes time to rebuild and time to recover. And just as we see in drought, uh, when the rains do come, it doesn't rain dollars. It takes time to rebuild again. And we really want people and communities to have confidence that Food Bank will be there to wrap their arms around you for as long as it takes. And are you worried that those same natural disasters and particularly the more recent ones, that they will erode the ability of farmers to support you in providing produce? We know that farmers and growers are amongst the most creative, clever, resilient people on the face of the earth. Um, I have an agri background. I absolutely respect and appreciate how hard our farmers are working to really mitigate what has been more frequent and more severe natural disasters over the last few years. So I know farmers are going to be working incredibly hard to make sure they can endure these changes. Um, But I appreciate that the more focus we put on efficiency on farm and in our supply chains, the less food there's going to be for Food Bank to rescue. But you're not necessarily finding it harder to source the raw products that you need in the face of those tightening margins and supply constraints. Right now we are, absolutely. In fact, we're having to buy a great deal of fresh produce uh, across multiple states and territories because we're not getting it through food rescue. We're seeing uh, variations in the specification requirements, so there's not enough product coming through rescue channels. Um, We absolutely appreciate why that is happening, and our absolute goal in this process is to make sure that farmers receive an income for the product that they are producing and, and the product that they are growing. Uh, but we also desperately need these products and we need to be able to incentivize donation of products into food relief. And it's one of the reasons that we've been working with the likes of the National Farmers Federation, with our retailers, with transport and logistics companies 
to really advocate for a tax incentive. We want to see a food donation tax incentive so that if a grower or a farmer is donating a product for the purposes of food relief, that there's actually a tax benefit in doing that. And similarly, for those small businesses out there that are in transport and logistics, we'd love to see them get a tax incentive as well, because at the end of the day, we don't want to see anything wasted. We want to make sure when a product comes out of the, the soil, comes off a tree, whatever the case may be, harvested off a paddock, that it actually ends up in the tummies of people who can appreciate it. You know, we are recognised as having the best produce and the best farm products in the world. The worst thing to happen would be to see it ploughed back in. So if we can use tax levers and other incentives to get more food into the homes of vulnerable Australians, it's a win-win for everyone. That was Food Bank CEO Bryony Casey speaking there with Peter Somerville. From the paddock to the plate, countrywide on ABC Radio. There's something like 170,000 jobs available in Australian agriculture right now. But often, ag doesn't get a look in with the careers advisors in high schools. That's where the Primary Industries Education Foundation is stepping in with more programs to help drive the food and fibre conversation in the classroom. Here's CEO Luciana Masiti chatting with Larissa Smith. Farmer Time is an international program that's based on the concept of a virtual farm tour. So wherever you are in the classroom, you can engage with a producer or anyone along the supply chain. And so I guess given the, the COVID and remote learning, we, we've got this product which allowed us to get into the classrooms, even though students couldn't go on an excursion into, you know, wherever it might be. It, it, it gave us the ability to expand that. We have a range of resources that go with that, and what we offer to teachers is it's not just about talking to a farmer for half an hour. It's about there's a set of lessons that are curriculum-linked that link in to that farmer time experience. So it's also breaking down those barriers in terms of what is agriculture, because essentially what we're trying to encourage young people to think about is careers in agriculture as the output of our engagement um, and passion and interest in where their food comes from, but essentially breaking down those barriers about what is agriculture. So the stereotype is old man on a tractor. And I think we've got to better engage with young people and parents, because parents are a big influence here, uh, and teachers as well, about what does agriculture mean. There's figures around that say 80% of agriculture happens once the product leaves the farm gate. There's um, about 35% of jobs are in capital cities. National Farmers Federation recently released some data to say there's 170,000 jobs available in agriculture today. We have a lot of work to do, and I guess um, PIFA has a number of programs to try and engage with schools and students and get them interested and passionate. It's a collective effort. And it's challenging too because there are so many pressures placed on teachers today to get through so much content within that school year. So what are you doing differently to wrap everything up neatly that can be taught in classrooms without adding to their workload. Absolutely. So everything that we do is curriculum linked. So um, a teacher has to follow the curriculum. We have more and more teachers who are not trained in, say, teaching agriculture or are, um, are not familiar with food and fibre curriculum. 
And so we have um, teacher professional development programs to support those teachers. We're developing what, what we class as incursions and pre-recorded lessons so that teachers can play a pre-recorded lesson in the classroom uh, and, and still engage the students through that with associated resources that go with that. So we're really targeting to the needs of teachers. Teachers don't have time, try, trying to really fashion those programs to the needs of teachers so they don't have to work hard. Cameron Archer, you've been with PIFA since its inception. How much of a role does PIFA play in promoting a teaching career within AG? We'd like to do much more there because there's a great shortage of agriculture teachers. It's high on our agenda to look for funds to do that because we get funded by grants and also from our member base and we work with closely with the agricultural teachers associations around Australia and they're, they're really a partner with us and they do great work but there is an enormous shortage of agricultural teachers so we're looking to support teachers moving from teaching in other areas into agriculture mm. <laughs> and, yeah. and, and giving that support see so that's sometimes they get to, they get asked to teach and they, they don't they've never taught it so that's the important thing that we do too. In that, in that case what's complex is that each state has their own accreditation system for for teachers and therefore it really comes down to the requirements of the Department of Education and the universities providing the, um, the training to make that very transparent because a lot of teachers find it difficult to find out information about the pathways to lead to retraining or even training to be an ag teacher. We're on a journey at the moment to make that whole picture clear. Luciano Masiti and Cameron Archer from Primary Industries Education Foundation of Australia. From the paddock to the plate, countrywide on ABC Radio. We know the Aussie outback is possibly one of the toughest terrains in the world to sustain agriculture, but a team of Australian scientists is collaborating on a start-up project which will aim to grow plants in an even tougher environment, the surface of the moon. The Lunaria 1 project will send a capsule to the moon filled with carefully selected seeds and resurrection plants alongside sensors, a camera and water. The team is aiming to land on the moon as early as 2025 and the information they gather could have applications for agriculture back on Earth. Reporter Matt Perry spoke with lead researcher Lauren Fell from the Queensland University of Technology. We're starting relatively small. We just want to put a couple of species of seeds and what are called resurrection plants in a little pod that's going to the lunar surface and we're going to watch them for 72 hours to see whether they can grow. And what will you be growing? We're looking at things like the resurrection species are essentially plants that can almost have all of their water be dehydrated and, and lose almost all of their water and sort of survive in a bit of a dormant state uh, and they can you know, survive freezing temperatures, very hot temperatures, uh, all sorts of things that normal plants couldn't. Uh, and then as soon as you introduce water, they can sort of revive and, and the dead parts of the plants become green again and, and, and become alive again. Um, so that's a really good candidate that we're looking at and there's some Australian native species of that as well that we're looking at. And in terms of seeds, we're looking at things that, again, in their dormant state, in their seed state, can survive freezing temperatures and, and also temperature swings. So a lot of things can either survive in freezing or either in, in really hot weather, but we're going to experience both on the trip there. So we need something that can do both. So we're looking at, we're looking at a number of seeds that can do that from around the world. 
And I guess what are the main aims of the project or what are you hoping to, to learn from it? Well, first of all, we just want to learn, can once we've selected these, these sort of seeds and there's a whole scientific process behind that, can we see growth? Can we actually get that first step of, of actually something that can survive the trip and grow? Beyond that, we'd like to build on that on future, future missions where we, we expand and start to watch them over longer periods of time, uh, as well as put them in other sort of substrates like the lunar soil and sort of expand on that so that eventually astronauts can grow plants for food as well as just general well-being, have a nice little house plant in their lunar habitat up there. And there are sort of spin-offs to this as well. If we can find things that can survive extremes of conditions and also require little resources to grow, that's also going to be important for us here on Earth as well, uh, using less energy to, to make crops, uh, using less water is something that we need to do here to, to ensure that we've got sustainable food production here on Earth. And where could this lead in the future? Could we see full-scale farming operations on the moon or even on, on space stations? Is that what you're potentially looking at in the future? Yeah, so we're, we're working with vertical farming companies as well. So this, this involves universities and researchers, but also industry. And so we're working with people that, that deal with vertical farming, uh, which, like I said, this importance of using not a lot of space and not a lot of resources. Vertical farming is something that's coming up as, as being useful in this area. And certainly on the moon, also on Mars, the moon's kind of a stepping stone to Mars. Probably Mars is the ultimate goal there, but, but we'd like to see ways that you can grow things up there because it's a whole lot more sustainable than sending food to astronauts. And it's a whole lot nicer to have something fresh than something that's been freeze-dried. Uh, and having something fresh is really, really important for particularly long-term missions. We're sort of talking about the, the red planet, but obviously we have the big red centre in Australia, and you sort of mentioned that this could have some applications for agriculture in those really harsh environments. Is that something that, I guess, people on the ground here in Australia are paying attention to this project to see what lessons they could learn for the, you know, opening up new areas of Australia to different kinds of agriculture? Yes, certainly. Some of the conditions that we're looking at are crossover. And one of the plant species, the resurrection species that we're looking at, is something that does grow out in the, in the outback, in the red centre. So there's quite a lot of crossover there. There's also some activities you know, involved in finding the best way to have existing crops and ensure that they can grow in, in such harsh environments. So that's certainly something that's important, particularly with the the temperature swings going very hot and very cold. That's something that's quite challenging and, and, of course, something that we see occur in Australia. That was Queensland University of Technology researcher Lauren Fell speaking there with Matt Perry. From the top end to Tassie, countrywide on ABC Radio. Australia's largest barramundi farm is located near Humpty Doo in the Northern Territory. And after years of expansion, it now produces about 100 tonnes of barra each week and employs around 150 people. That's a lot of fish and a lot of employees who have come from all over to work in the hot, humid conditions of the top end. Nick Langley, originally from Melbourne, shared his barramundi journey with Matt Brand. Uh, yeah, so my journey is a little bit different. Um, I actually was born and raised in Melbourne, um, so I've come up from pretty much the one of the coldest parts um, to come up here. So from straight out of school, I was straight into university in James Cook University in Townsville. Um, from there, I, I studied for about five years, um, getting a Bachelor in Science with majors in aquaculture and marine biology. 
and then I furthered my studies with a master's degree in aquaculture. Um, from there, I was fortunate enough to get a job working um, on a, a prawn farm um, just south of Townsville and Eyre, um, and I was there for two and a half years working on their uh, environmental uh, management team. So I learned a lot uh, in that experience and, and had a sort of great uh, relationship with that farm. Um, and then sort of times changed and, and my partner got a job up in the Territory, so um, I sort of followed suit. Um, I dabbled in the, uh, the coral industry for a little bit, um, decided that it really wasn't for me, so I sort of went looking elsewhere. Um, and then, yeah, I was fortunate to come across an op uh, opportunity here at Humpty Doo Barramundi. Um, they were obviously hiring technicians for their new nursery, which was only a couple of months old. Um, and, yeah, jumped on the opportunity, and, and I've been here for just over two years now and, and sort of haven't looked back since. Farming prawns, farming barramundi, is there much difference? Yeah, huge difference. Um, obviously, barramundi is a lot more sort of interactive. Uh, prawns, they're, they're at the bottom of a pond doing their thing. Um, it's very static culture. Um, not to say that it's, it's boring by any means, there's still certainly plenty of opportunities and challenges there, but fish can be a little bit more uh, sort of needy, I suppose, at times. But we constantly have to monitor them and, and move them around and do that sort of thing. So, um, and they also require a lot more, more water and a lot more um, sort of attention to detail, I guess you could call it, not to take anything away from prawns. Um, now I get it, and, and tell me. Your job at the farm, what does it involve? Uh, so I'm the, one of the frontline supervisors in this nursery. Um, so working with my, with my manager, um, we sort of run this operation of, of 14 tanks. Um, it's a very new system that we're running here. It's only about two years old. Uh, so we're constantly looking after little barramundi fingerlings. Uh, they arrive in our nursery about 20 grams. And then by the time they leave here, they're about 200 to 250 grams. So they're in here for about a total of six weeks. Um, before they sort of make their journey between the, the little sort of the other nurseries to the to the ponds um, where the next stage takes over. So that's decent. Did you say 20 grams to 200 grams in six weeks? Yeah. That's bulking up, isn't it? It is. They absolutely fly through when they're in here, um, especially when the water's nice and warm like we are at the moment. Um, these little fish go absolutely nuts. Um, so we have to yeah, constantly look after them, um, monitor them as well every week and then we also have to grade them and sort them to size um, so that uh, they stay nice and healthy, they don't start eating each other uh, and they, they keep uh, keep trucking along in, in the production cycle. So That's I'd forgotten, they can be cannibalistic, can't they? Absolutely, yeah. as, as I'm sure many um, barramundi fishers will know, they'll eat just about everything and anything they can fit in their mouth, um, which for us unfortunately includes their brothers. Uh, so we have to be very careful uh, making sure that they're able to they have enough room, they have enough food, um, so we don't lose a uh, large proportion of our fish to, to each other. Yep. And you're right, they are just tanks filled with boys, aren't they? That's exactly right. All barramundi, as we know, they start off as boys, and then uh, yeah, about that later stage in life, they turn into girls. So, yeah, a lot of hungry little boys we've got in here. You're from Melbourne, you're working here now. What keeps you in the Northern Territory? I think it's the lifestyle more than anything. Um, yeah, there's, there's, I think it's about one third of the population owns boats, so that works beautifully with me going fishing every weekend. Love my fishing, love my outdoors, um, so it's, it's a fantastic place to be. It can certainly be hot at times and that has its challenges, but um, having just bought a house here as well, I think we're, we're definitely in here for the long term. And, and uh, the people are great up here, so we're really fortunate to, to be in a place where we're so happy. When you go fishing... Do you get much joy from catching a barramundi? Surprisingly, yes. Um, I'm not sure there's too many people in the world that would work with one particular animal and then on their days off go and try and catch the exact same animal. So 
Yeah, it's a, it's a very unique situation that we're in, but to be honest, we can't get enough of it and we just absolutely love it. So, yeah. Are you in the meter club? I am, oh. yes. <laughs> That's why you're standing taller than I am, you see. I'm sort of hunched over and yeah. lacking confidence, but look at you. It was a freshwater one, so I'm not sure if that counts. That counts. It yeah. counts, yeah. yeah. So, but uh, definitely the upcoming months uh, when it starts raining, that's going to be the goal for next year. So hopefully get a big saltwater meter in. Thanks for your time on the Country Hour. No Thanks for having me. That was Melbourne expat Nick Langley from Humpty Doo, Barramundi, speaking there with Matt Bran. From the top end to Tassie, countrywide on ABC Radio. Australia's first all-Indigenous wool harvesting team is gearing up for its first national competition after facing world-class competitors in New Zealand last month. The Merino Shears in New Zealand was the young team's first time competing against much more experienced competitors. Samson Tefata heads up the wool harvesting sector at the Dubbo-based Regional Enterprise Development Institute. He says the all-Indigenous team performed well in New Zealand and stand a good chance at the national competition in Bendigo next month. We're just so excited that we're able to actually take them there in the first place and, and the competition there, we're overwhelmed with having us there. There's still, there's still huge waves over there about our how time there. Yeah, I heard um, when you went there, you know, members of the audience burst into a spontaneous haka to welcome your team. Yes, that's a, that's, for me, that's a natural occurrence. But for, for most, it just comes out of nowhere. And, and that's just the way it is in New Zealand, especially in our Maori culture. Have you been trying to encourage more um, Indigenous shearers to come into the industry? Yeah, I think there's a natural occurrence there. Uh, our young ones out there, mate, they're going to do it all for us. Now, there's a pretty pronounced shearer shortage in the industry at the moment, and you're trying to get more Indigenous youth involved. Are you seeing that as a sort of opportunity? Absolutely, we are. It's, it's, it's the time is now to, to encourage our youth. We've, this is just the beginning, and uh, I know they're out there, and I know we need their help. And of course, you're known as a legend in the industry. You've been steeped in it for decades. What would you say makes a good shearer or wool handler? Pretty much it's all the little things that you've got to do. Pretty much you're you're able to pick someone out with their natural abilities. And this is where Indigenous is really good. They, They have a natural ability to turn the hand to that physical work. What do you think are the chances of uh, your team's going to the World Championships in Scotland um, after Bendigo? Yeah, I, I think we have a good chance of getting there from out of uh, and the selections. Our, our team members are pretty up there, if I could say it like that. Jolie Orchard is the youngest member of the All-Indigenous team at just 16 years old, but shearing is in her blood. Yes, this was my um, first time participating in an event, um, first time competing. I was very nervous and overwhelmed in the beginning, um, but as the days went on, I got used to seeing the same faces every day and getting used to seeing how they work. How did you get into shearing? So shearing has been um, in both sides of my family uh, for generations. I started working in the sheds in uh, 2020 when COVID first hit. Um, I was at school at the time and um, I couldn't attend school. They had shut school for a few weeks because uh, a few of the students um, tested positive for COVID. And um, by the time school started back, I'd already 
um, had a full-time job uh, wool handling in the shearing sheds around. Uh... Do, you, do you plan to stay doing it full-time? Yeah, yeah, I love it. Um, I think I'll, I'll be in the shearing industry for a while. And so you were in the, the youth team. How did your team um, do in the competition? We did good. Almost everything was on point. Our, po- our uh, time just slowed us down and a bit of the shearers let us down. But um, overall... Um, Stop bagging the shearers. <laughs> How long have you been doing wool handling? I mean, you're only, you're only 16. Uh, it mustn't have been very long. A bit over 12 months I've been in the shearing industry. Has your team made it into the uh, Bendigo comp now? Yes, we have. All of us are competing again at Bendigo and hopefully we all make it through to Scotland. (laughs) That was Jolie Orcher, wool handler based in Dubbo, speaking there with Hannah Jose. And that's all for Countrywide this week. My name's Alex Trelaw. Thanks for listening. For more rural news across the nation, you can visit ABC Rural website or the ABC Rural Facebook page.